gonna play the melody on here. Good morning, church family. Uh, I think a few weeks ago, uh, you all remember that Josh sent you an email about a Supreme Court case, and I thought we could kind of take a better look at that. It's a, uh, there was a uh, postal worker who, of course, got Sundays off uh, until uh, the post office decided that they would uh, have a contract with uh, Amazon where the post office would deliver packages on Sundays. And our, our brother, jo Groff, Gerald Groff, uh, was a Sunday keeper. And so, uh, as I recall, he got fired. Um, and there is a, um, a method to, to getting these, these uh, discrimination cases heard. And that is most likely is a complaint to the EEOC, the Equal Opportunity Commission, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. You got a 30 day window to do that. And if you don't get a good result there, then you take it on to a higher, higher level. And this case uh, got to the Supreme Court. And the reason it got to the Supreme Court was there was a, um, I wanna give you a little bit of history. In uh, 1964, there was a Civil Rights Act was, was passed. And under Title VII, um, there was um, protection for, for workers who wanted to exercise religious liberty. Uh, that's also the, the act under which the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, was founded. But in every, in every Supreme Court case, there's always a standard to meet. And uh, the standard that was applied in this Title VII regarding religious discrimination was, uh, was uh, cemented in this case called TWA versus Hardison. And in that case, which was in 1977, the standard imposed was on, on employers was a minimal undue burden, which is a very low 
barrier. Um, and so for years, that it was really hard to, to bring a, a, a religious discrimination case. So now, now we have a, a highly conservative Supreme Court, and they took on this case, uh, the, the Groff case, um, and they actually changed that standard. Uh, the Groff and people and organizations that were writing um, their uh, briefs uh, on his behalf wanted this standard to be the same as in the ADA, Americans for Disabilities Act, which would be uh, that the employer would have to take on uh, significant difficulty or expense to accommodate a religious exemption. The, 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 the Supreme Court did not accept that, but they did, um, they did take on the standard that, that it would result in substantial increased cost in relation to the conduct of its particular business. So the Hardison case, and I hope I'm not losing everybody, but the Hardison case was left intact, but the standard on which uh, the religious discrimination cases were um, measured against was a, is a higher standard, so it's easier to get a religious accommodation now. So if you know of anybody, let's say you know somebody who has a, a very strongly felt religious conviction against uh, working on the Sabbath or, or Sunday, um, it would be something to refer to our religious liberty department that could help this person along in, in getting uh, accommodated for their religious beliefs. It also, of course, works for, uh, for Muslims that want to wear a hijab or uh, a Jew that wants to wear a little yarmulke uh, on, on their heads. Uh, those all fall under um, the Title VII Religious Discrimination Act. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, if you do know of somebody, it, it, would, it would be um, a good thing to refer to our Religious Liberty Department. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Bronca. I appreciate those updates. And, <clears throat> you know, one of the things we certainly do take for granted is religious liberty. And um, I believe personally that even though the courts are saying certain things at this time, <clears throat> we want to protect our religious liberties as much as possible in this, in this country. And... Um, be able to use our convictions and our, our um, truths of, of, of the Lord, be able to share it in a way that um, is, uh, is freely expressed and not uh, mandated by, by the government. Uh, won't you bow your heads with me as we just have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Gracious Lord Jesus, we have come before your holy throne of grace not only to receive mercy, but to draw closer and still closer to the one who created us and who knows every fabric and fiber of our being. And so, Lord Jesus, <clears throat> there are many voices and pressures and concerns and worries and unmet issues in each of our lives. But just now, dear Lord, 
take those away from our minds and help us to just to think about the higher the higher atmosphere of your presence and the beauty of your sweet spirit. And we'll be very careful to give you the praise, honor, and glory, Jesus. In your precious name, amen. When I was a young man, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, was most thrilling to me to be able to do was to get on my dad's backhoe and dig a hole. It was amazing that these four little controls in the day, they had four controls. These four little controls, if I just moved them just right, I could, with this powerful big steel bucket, dig down into the ground and pick up dirt, bring it over and dump it, and go back over and pick up another big hole. And my dad used to let me dig holes. And then I had to fill them in. And then I could go to another spot in the yard and dig another big hole. And then I had to fill them in. Oh, man, I felt so mighty and so powerful on that backhoe. And I, <laughs> talking with Jerry here a while back, and he was talking about renting a backhoe and using equipment down at his son's house. And, you know, it's just interesting when you put your body into a machine and you're able to take that machine and do something you just normally can't do with just your body. I felt the same way the first time I, 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 I was soloing an airplane without my instructor beside me. And I pushed that throttle forward and I rolled down the runway and I took off all by myself and I was flying the airplane. It was an amazing experience going around the loop. And when you're going to get your solo license, you have to do three touch and goes. But I forgot about that. And I touched down and I told the tower I was done. And, and my instructor got on the radio and goes, no, you got to keep going around, Jay. Add throttle. <laughs> and so, oh, add the throttle. And off I went around for my other two times. To be able to do something you can't normally do, but you connect your body to this machine and it just becomes, you become kind of something other than what you normally are. I liken those two stories to the spiritual, amazing attributes of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit comes into our life and does something in us that we cannot do on our own. We have no equipment in our frail human self to do what God can do when he abides in our life. There are a lot of confusing teachings about the Holy Spirit that I want to deal with, but I want to look at the Holy Spirit today as an extension of my hands, my feet, my heart, my lips, my eyes. It's an extension of God. You and I are an extension of God to a world. But there are a lot of confused, confusing religious groups out there that, that talk about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is, is, is only seen as, as a manifestation of some exuberant moment, some... Uh, 
excitement, um, something that the Spirit is doing that is just exciting, and yet there's really no converting power associated with it. I remember many years ago hearing about a, an Adventist minister at a workers' meeting who had gone to a Benny Hinn crusade where there were all these um, great speaking in tongues and healings and all these things, and, and uh, this pastor, this Adventist pastor was scooped up by all of these manifestations, and he received what he assumed was the gift of tongues and of healing, and pretty soon he led his congregation into what would later be known as the Toronto Blessing. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of that before. But pretty soon in the Toronto Blessing, which even many of the Assembly of Gods and those individuals who speak in tongues have completely divested themselves from, the, the Toronto Blessing gets into the involved where, where people are literally mooing like cows and barking like dogs in the name of the Holy Spirit. Just dysfunctional activities that God never created us to do in the first place. So what does the Bible teach us about the Holy Spirit? Well, that's where we get into our scripture today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 16 because I refer to John chapter 16 so much in my own personal life. Because if we don't get this issue, then our spiritual life is merely a mechanical, memorized theological thing. But if we get this, our lives become pliable in the very hands that created us that then can use us for godly purposes. The Bible tells us in John 16, 14, Jesus says that he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Number one, the Holy Spirit wants to bring glory to God wants to bring glory to Jesus. The Holy Spirit entering into a person's life isn't about being, being glorifying the person or making the person some ecstatic individual. It's about seeing more of Jesus in that person. He will bring glory to me. The work and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not to bring glory to anyone but Jesus. It's interesting, the circle, how the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father, and the Spirit glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Spirit. It's a very beautiful, intricate system. I don't know if you've ever talked with someone before, and they told you their story, and it's not your story, and you listen to them, and pretty soon you feel their you feel their their sorrow. You you begin to empathize deeply with the trauma that they're sharing with you, and pretty soon tears begin to flow down your eyes as you're hearing someone else's story being communicated to you. That, that goes beyond sympathy. You begin to empathize with them. Maybe you recognize even something in your own life that that person begins to tell you. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. 
It begins to take even a total stranger and helps you to see that total stranger as someone precious in the eyes of God. Jesus wants to fill his people with the Holy Spirit so that Jesus can hear and love and touch other people in our society through you and I. It's as simple as that. You've heard it said, someone said, well, I prayed for love and Jesus brought someone challenging into my life. <laughs> and I prayed for, for wisdom and, and Jesus brought some test before me that I needed to solve. And someone said, well, I prayed for courage and Jesus had brought a difficulty into my life. Jesus wants us to love with an unyielding passion. When Jesus told us, love your enemies and pray for those who despise you, Jesus acknowledged that we would have people that we would consider they're not for us, they're against us. They're called enemies. And yet Jesus said, pray for your enemies enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Well, that is impossible without the Holy Spirit. That's just like me saying with my hand I can pick up all that dirt and move it so easily. Or I can run fast enough that I can fly like an airplane. I can't do it without the mechanics of these machines. And I cannot love without the indwelling Holy Spirit in my life. It's impossible. I can try to make it and fake it, but without the Holy Spirit, it isn't real. When Jesus left, he transferred the authority of the Holy Spirit so that it would fill us with the quality of God. Think about that. We are filled with the quality of God with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the, that part of the Godhead that is most essential today. We ought never to walk through our day without praying first, send the Holy Spirit in my life so that I might be who you want me to be, dear Lord. Because without the Holy Spirit... We just basically live off of our own wants and our own desires. But Jesus transferred the authority of his ministry to the Holy Spirit. Much kind of like how when, when Moses was, was dying, he transferred his authority to Joshua so they could enter the promised land. And Elijah transferred his authority to Elisha. And Elisha received the double portion of the Holy Spirit. And even John the Baptist, remember him? He transferred his authority to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm unworthy to even untie his sandals. And Jesus transferred it to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into God's children all for the glory of God. Now some have said... Well, you Seventh Adventists, you guys talk a lot about health and, and you're concerned about what you eat and you're concer concerned about, you know, oh, don't drink this or don't do this. Listen, we believe that we, by the basis of the scriptures, are the 
temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. Therefore, if we are the temple, we want to treat our bodies as sanctuaries for his indwelling. In fact, I would say this, God cares way more about your body than he does about this building. Way more. And this building is just an empty vessel until his church comes in to worship him. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. This last Wednesday night, I had an opportunity just to go out for a little while with the team that was going out to feed the homeless. And so I had about a half hour time, so I went out there with them and and uh, Brenda and I decided we would do the walk. We should call it now the Connie walk because it was the walk that always Connie would do. And it's a very familiar walk. And I know, uh, I know Parker's done the walk actually quite a few times with Connie. And so you take the walk and you know just where different homeless people hang out. And you want to invite them to come on up for some food. And there was this gal sitting on the street with a sign trying to get some money. I had never seen her before, and neither had Brenda. Her name was Wendy. She was new to PA. She had just arrived just that day or the day before. And uh, so we invited her to come eat some food that the team was providing. And so we told her where it was, but you know what? She just got up, picked up her sign, and followed us. And so she made her way to the, the place where the food was being given. Now, Brenda carried on a nice conversation with her over there, and I had a few others I wanted to visit with, and um, I actually saw a young man by the name of Daniel. I don't know if you know Daniel, but Daniel is a sweet boy, but boy, he is really um, addicted to fentanyl, and it just breaks my heart. But anyway, Brenda's visiting with Wendy, and, and so after some time, I walked back over to see how that conversation was going. And she had lots of questions that she was kind of uh, posing to Brenda and, and uh, about our group and our intentions. And I shared with her that our reason for being here is that we believe that each person is created by God and each is valuable to God and we desire to show God's love to each person that we encounter. And, and then she said, uh, actually, an unusual question. I've never really been asked this question before. What does valuable mean? What does valuable mean? My answer back to her was that she was made in the image of God. And that she is literally the fingerprint of God. And I said, Wendy, you deserve kindness. You deserve grace, and you deserve respect. We are here in a small way to give you that and to let you know that God made you, loves you, and wants a relationship with you. She looked at Brenda and said, wow, you guys are amazing. 
And uh, Brenda, thank you for just loving on Wendy Wednesday night. It was beautiful. Jesus basically wants to live out his life on this earth right now. The way he does it is through you and I. The way he imparts us with that power is with his Holy Spirit. And we cannot be his children effective just by knowing theological truth. We must be surrendered children seeking daily for the Holy Spirit to be manifested so that our words would be savored in love. That our actions would be given so that they, they, they're not, they, they, they don't hurt people, rather they love and lift up people. Jesus became a man to redeem his children in us. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus takes on human form to reach the lost and dying world. You see, the, the task that is before us is not impossible it is if we just try to do it in our own self, but it is not impossible because with the Holy Spirit of God, anything is possible. And lives can be transformed and people can have the assurance of salvation. You remember back in the 80s, WWJD. What would Jesus do? It became an industry, actually, that open-ended question. But more importantly to that question is how can I do what Jesus does? How can I do it? By surrendering to the Holy Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit make me an individual who is forgiving, who is tender, who is pliable for his kingdom. Although it is impossible to comprehend just how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, the Spirit's work is real enough so that its effects can be clearly seen in the ones who Jesus has invaded. So now turn in John 16 verse 5 and let's look at now the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16 verse 5. When I was um, starting the very first trip to go on the Philippine mission trip, it was back in 2001, and Debbie and I were going to take our oldest daughter, who is actually turning 33 today, and at the time she was, what, 10, something like that. Anyway, so we were taking her, and our two younger children were going to stay with my parents, Michael and Heather. And this was going to be four weeks. We had never been away from our little children for four weeks before. And it was, it was going to be a long time. And I remember, you know, the little children talking about, you know, don't leave us. And they're, they're sad. And we tried to tell them, you know, they're going to be doing some fun things with the grandparents and all these things. But then I remember saying to them, I said, now listen, when I come home, I'm going to bring each one of you a very special gift. 
And the, oh, really? Yes. You get ready, because I'm going to bring home a very special gift. You see, when Jesus was talking to the disciples, they were sorrowful. And Jesus said, now listen, when I go, I'm going to give you a very special gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit. He is leaving his dear children. The trial of the crucifixion is fast approaching. He wants to leave them with hope and with comfort. And so he begins to tell them in chapter 16, verse 5, Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me where am I going. Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Three things. Number one, about sin, because people do not believe in me. Number two, righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus identified three convictions that the Holy Spirit would be bringing to a, the, the Christian. And we're going to be digging into the next two Next week, but the first, the first one we're going to deal with today, conviction. Conviction is not just comprehension. Conviction is not just, oh, I get it. Conviction is I put it on myself, I wear it. Conviction is I allow it to change me. God wants us to have a conviction about each one of these, knowing with certainty and believing it strongly as truth insofar that I submit to it. The Phillips translation, I, I looked it up and it says this, when he comes, he will convict, convince the world of the meaning of sin, of true goodness, and of judgment. He will expose their sin because they do not believe in me. Now, you're all as good Seventh Avenue Christians know the text in 1 John chapter 3 that says anyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And we always like to jump on that one because we're, we like to talk about God's law and how God's law can be lived out in our life. But what is sin at its very core? What is sin? Verse 9 tells us in regard to sin, because men do not Believe in me. The steps at becoming a fully devoted disciple of Jesus first involve a conviction of sin. A conviction of sin. If you read the steps to Christ, you'll notice she takes you through the concept that you are a guilty sinner. We have to understand sin in order to understand the Savior. We have to understand the manipulation of what sin does to us in order to understand the the, the beautiful healing that the Savior gives to us. And the best way I can describe this in my own life and understanding of it is that I need to understand it like as if I came to the doctor, I was throwing up, I was sick to my stomach, I had a high temperature, I had sores, I was really in bad shape, and the, the, the doctor says, well, you have lots of fever, and, and, and that, that fever is, is, is incurable. 
all of a sudden that fever then takes over. That, that, that particular last of fever would take over as an incurable disease for me. And it certainly is lethal and I'm concerned. And now there's only one question on my mind. How do I fix it? What's the cure? I've never been concerned about the cure before. But now that I have it, I'm very concerned about the cure. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and your sin. Sin is not just an action of disobedience. Sin is a condition of the unbeliever. The one who has not been provided salvation. A person has to see himself as God sees him. And become aware of his own lostness and desperate need. Think of the most beautiful text in Scripture. For God so loved the world, the lost, that he gave his only begotten son, the solution. No person is in the condition to be saved who has not first come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he is lost. But once you understand that you're lost, then and only then does the Savior look really good. I remember when I was a kid in, in Ketchikan, there we had a huge swimming pool. I think it was probably the only swimming pool in the whole town. I don't think anybody else had a swimming pool in the town. But there was a big public swimming pool. And our school, our little grade school had lessons. And so we had to go up to take lessons at the grade school. We'd go to the big pool. And I remember there was this big eighth grade boy. He must have been in eighth grade. And I must have been like a first or second grader. And I remember holding me under the water. And I would come up and he'd hold me under the water. And man, it was scary. And I remember the whistle blew and the, the guard said, stop that. And I came up breathing, <coughs> coughing. Oh, error never tasted so good. And when you're drowning, or those hot days where you're outside and you just haven't had water for six hours, maybe a day even, I don't know. I mean, if you've gone for a long time without water and your tongue starts feeling like it's going to stick to the roof of your mouth, water tastes awful good. You're drowning or if you're thirsty, the solution is clear. Your desperate condition determines the appreciation of the solution. You got to understand, we have to understand our desperate condition. We are lost without Jesus and the condition is that and the solution is Jesus, the one who saves us. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. And I'm convinced, even within the realm of Christianity, many people don't understand the role of the Holy Spirit as it relates to sin. They see the Holy Spirit as, as an energy kind of pizzazz. They see the Holy Spirit as something that just kind of energizes you. But no, the Holy Spirit helps us realize our deepest need and points us to our greatest solution in Jesus. You see, murder and rape and incest and cheating and adultery, oh, they're great sins, but they're not the greatest sin. The greatest sin is not believing in God's beloved Son. 
You see, when you're grasping for air, you'll do anything to get it. When you're thirsty for water, (laughs) you'll do anything to satisfy that quench. And when you're convicted of your lostness and the ugliness of sin, then Jesus looks awful good. I've had a lot of people question why within the framework of the gospel must we talk about sin and death, but it seems rather apparent the gospel is only good news once you understand that it is you who have the last of fever, it is you who are lost, and Jesus is the cure. And it is His indwelling Holy Spirit's work to convict us and to lead us. We are like In a sense, we are like living corpses, living without the living Christ. And when Jesus comes into our world, all of a sudden our eyes are open and we can see, oh, we can see that we have a sweet Savior, a full, complete Savior who's willing to be involved in every one of the pieces of our life. And He heals us. But it wasn't easy for Jesus to heal us. For Jesus to heal us, he had to take our sin. He had to assume our lostness. He had to take the fever. He had to get the drowning. He had to take the filth in order for us to experience the healing. And so the Bible says, when they hurled, in 1 Peter 2, when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself, the Bible says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you and I have been healed. Peter, that old, bold, impetuous fisherman, Peter knew he was a sick puppy. He had tried to hold strong, but in his weakest hour, he even denied and cursed knowing Jesus. Peter was well aware that he was a sinner and that only Jesus could provide the conviction that he needed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes it very clear that upon the cross it says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He bore our sin. He took our sin. He became our sin. And then what the transaction is? That we might become the righteousness of God. What a, what a world's redeemer. What a sin bearer. If you ever forget how deadly is your condition, just look and turn to Calvary and just look and what what did sin do to Jesus? It's fatal, it's eternal, and it's disastrous. And by the way, if you ever start warming up to the lies of Satan, just remember it was his lies. It was his artistic craft that put precious Jesus on the cross. He doesn't love you. He doesn't love anyone. And all he wants to do is hurt the heart of God. We need the Holy Spirit's convicting power. For without it, 
At best, all we do at church is get entertained. And at worst, we get hardened hearts. We need the conviction. We're not here for information, family. We're not here for information. We're here for conviction. Holy God, use me. Surrender my heart. Use my words to be flowing with, with your love. There's a song out there that this last week at 12 Step we listened to with our, our group. And some of you have heard the song maybe multiple times. Others of you, maybe this, you've never heard the song, and that's okay. But the words are so powerful that I want to share a few of them with you. It starts out by talking about that I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I'll never measure up. I am, am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? And as, as the prayer goes, remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. And then in the, the words of the chorus of this song, you say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. And you say I am held when I am falling short. And when I don't belong, you say I am yours. You say I am yours. So what does God say about you today? Oh, it's true. God sees us as sinners but he mostly sees us as his children. And he sees us through the spectacle of Calvary, that when he shed his blood, he shed it for you and I. And every person that we will meet at the drugstore and at the grocery store and on the street, he shed it for every single one. And Jesus is wanting to say through the Holy Spirit and through your voice and through my voice, that you are loved. Because this world throws a lot of junk at people. This world throws a lot of hatred at people. But what can Jesus say through you and through me? I want to just challenge you this week. Every morning when you wake up, have a conversation with God and invite his sweet Holy Spirit into your life so that your words might be the savor of heaven and that your actions might be the healing somebody needs. And together as a church family, we might be able to see people come to the foot of the cross because God has used his children. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our dear Lord Jesus, we want to pray for the Holy Spirit's power in our life. A power that brings conviction, not just knowledge and not just understanding, but we want to wear God in our life. We want to have you speak through us. We want to have you do your work through us. And I know, Jesus, that when that takes place, there is a power that re 
just energizes us and, and excites us. And we know, dear God, that there is a power so much greater than we ourselves could even begin to muster. So I want to pray today for the church family, for those who are here and for those who are listening and for those of our family that aren't able to be here, whether through sickness or travel. Oh, Lord God, please send your Holy Spirit. In these final hours of earth's history, we want to be your chosen people to love like never before. And to not show partiality to people just because they don't smell like us or look like us or sing like us or whatever. We want to love as Jesus would love. And we want to bring healing as Jesus would bring healing. And so, dear Lord Jesus, we know we cannot do it without you. And so we open up our hearts. We want to be transmitters of your grace. May you bless us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. For our closing hymn, it is Spirit of the Living God. Hymn number 672, Spirit of the Living God. Shall we all rise? Precious Lord Jesus, this morning we thank you for this time together. We thank you that we can talk about your gift. And we pray, dear Lord Jesus, that that sweet spirit would bring the conviction upon each of our lives. Dear Lord, we want to be faithful tools for your kingdom.
We don't want to know just how to balance the the checkbook and and how to buy the groceries and how to run a household. We want to know how to be responsible children for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We want to, Jesus, be prepared for that day when you look us in the eye and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so today, dear Jesus, just in the quietness of this moment with our heads bowed, there's someone here, Jesus, that you just want to give a special sense of, I love you, I can take care of you, I can carry you through this time. I know you're going through a tough time right now, but my spirit is there with you. Dear Lord Jesus, for that person today, may they just feel in a special way your comfort. Sometimes, Lord God, there are more questions than we have answers for. And so I want to just pray, Jesus, that your spirit would just come and fill us, molding and making us the kind of people you want us to be. Thank you that we are not alone, that our God is great and he is always here with us. And the fellowship, that sweet fellowship of your spirit is such a powerful comfort in our life. So now, may the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yes, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us both now and forever, we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.